weeks just in sharing out of and in the book of Romans. So as I was thinking about this, um, I was just thinking about the uniqueness of what we do as Christians. We do something that is quite unusual by comparison where we are gathering together to sing together, to offer praises up to God together, and then to sit and hear someone talk and say something that we can take and run with. And so I don't take it lightly that as we work through this book that we are really getting some real life principles, things that are really going to help us and affect the way that we live. And so in today's sermon, it is entitled, Who's to Blame? Who's to Blame? And the reason it is that title is because if you are familiar with Romans chapter 7, which is where we'll be today, you'll know that in Romans 7, there is a lot of discussion about who is the responsible party when it comes to sin. Is it me? Is it the law? Is it God? Is it sin itself? And so we need to figure that out. And the reason why we need to figure that out is because that doesn't just affect the way that we live, but it also affects the way that we look at other people and even witness other people who may be struggling in sin like we talked about last week. And that is the tension of the experience as a Christian. When I sin, is it because of me or is it because of the external realities that exist around me? Now, the passage that we're looking at, all of seven, has been misinterpreted quite a bit. And I'll tell you like this, when I approach a passage, especially one like Romans or Romans 7, You know, I go in a lot of times thinking, I figured this passage out, I know exactly what it's saying, I know what I need to communicate. But that is the point of studying, because as we study the word, we get deeper and deeper into the truths. And what I think we're going to learn today is going to help us, but it's also going to help the way that we witness to others who may not know the Lord. And so I want to read this passage today, maybe not the way we've traditionally heard it, but the way that Paul intended it to be read when he wrote this letter to that church in Rome. And so that's going to change our framework a little bit. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump all the way down. We're going right to Romans 7, but we're starting in the seventh verse today. Romans 7, and we're actually starting in the seventh verse. Romans 7 and 7, it says, What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceives me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray. Lord, as we jump into this text, God, help us see what the intended meaning of this text is, God. Open our eyes and 
Help us have clarity and truth and even reverence for what you have spoken in these words through Paul. God, as we work through this, help us understand our relationship with the law, our own sin, and how Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, delivers us from all of it. And God, even as we think about those who we know who are struggling with sin, who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you will soften our heart today towards them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we will be breaking down this text basically into two parts. And so in this first part, it seeks to answer this question. What did the law do? What did the law do? Well, Paul starts by saying what the law did not do. And he says that the law did not cause sin. The law is not the cause of sin. Now, when he says law, by the way, he is not mentioning the hundreds of laws that were later added after the Ten Commandments, but he's actually just referring here to the Ten Commandments. And so, like we saw last week, he says, and what shall we say? Is the law itself sin? And he's wrestling through this. Now, why is he answering this question that nobody seems to be asking? Well, it actually goes to what he said right before these verses, and I wanted to skip over them so we could look at them with a critical eye. Right before this, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, he says that even though sin was aroused by the commandments, that it does not mean that the law or the commandments are the cause of sin in us. Now, some of us may actually think that this is unimportant, but it is significant. I have noticed this growing trend with friends of mine who are men who have this unmentioned fear of going to the doctor. Now, I probably have the opposite fear, whatever that is, but men, a lot of the men that I know are afraid to go to the doctor. And if you ask them why they don't go, they'll make all sorts of excuses. Well, I went 10 years ago or five years ago, I was fine or I feel good or I don't feel like anything is wrong. But if you press just a little bit, they'll land on something like this. If I go, then they might find something. And therein lies the problem. In the head of many men, they know that going to the doctor will not cause anything to be wrong, but they do believe that going to the doctor will reveal something that is wrong. And that revelation is what they want to avoid. And so in this strange paradox, in this circular logic, they avoid the doctor and think that by avoiding the doctor, they will also avoid sickness. 
But really, by avoiding the doctor, you are not avoiding sickness. You are only avoiding diagnosis. By avoiding the doctor, they are avoiding the possibility that if they do have something, that the doctor will catch it and treat it. By avoiding them, they are increasing the likelihood that if something is wrong, that they will actually probably succumb to it. Paul says here that the law in its own way is really revealing the depth of our own sinful condition. The law aroused sin in us. Now, some could take this as Paul saying that the law is the reason why we sin, but he's actually saying the opposite. The law isn't any more guilty of causing us to sin that going to the doctor will cause you to have cancer. But Paul is giving us a clue into the human condition. What is it in us, y'all, that desires what we shouldn't have even when we know we shouldn't have it? It is, as a young Michael Jackson said before he sung Ain't No Sunshine, he said, you ever want something that you know you shouldn't have? And the more you know you shouldn't have it, the more you want it. It is like when Elaine, here's your weekly Seinfeld reference. It is like when Elaine, warned of how hot a plate was by the waitress, still put her hands on it, saying, I just wanted to know what your definition of hot really was. It could be that our condition is so much worse than we actually think that it is. And you don't realize it without the law of God. But you want to know what else is funny? I said that my problem is a little bit reverse of most men. According to Christy, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. But I'll tell you like this. I have never Googled a disease that I did not have the symptoms for. I'm just the truth. I don't know what it is about seeing those symptoms, but it heightens my attention to my own body, and I start to notice everything that I wasn't noticing. You know what? I might be a little dizzy, or I might be a little twitchy. I might have a few of these conditions, because the more I read it, the more I feel it. The more it arouses the feeling that I have what's going on. And y'all, the law of God does the same thing for us. It reveals our sinfulness, but it also heightens our senses to it. The difference, though, and this is what Paul is arguing here, that the man who avoids going to the doctor is that if he goes and does find something, if he goes to the doctor and finds that he has some sickness, the same source that revealed the sickness will treat the sickness. And that's the difference between us and the law. The law reveals our sinfulness. It may even arouse our sinfulness, but the law offers no treatment for our sinful condition. So when Paul says here that he started to covet even more, he is quick to state that it is not the law that caused that, but it was sin seizing an opportunity on him. Notice how he is starting to describe sin. 
Sin is not just something that begins to exist once we disregard the law, but he is describing sin as a prowler, as an opportunist. I listen to this crime junkie podcast, and there are essentially two types of criminals. There are those who plan their crime, and there are opportunity criminals. Opportunity criminals have the underlying desire to commit a crime, but they wait on the right opportunity to present itself before they actually act. Genesis asserts that sin lies in wait, crouching like a predator, eyeing an unknowing prey. In describing sin as a living creature or a predator, Paul says that without the law, sin lies dead in us. But there is life for mankind. Now, is he again accusing the commandment of God to lead to sin? No. So this is a good time to clear something up about this text because I've heard people say something about this text that is not completely accurate. When Paul speaks here, when he speaks about the I here, he is only sometimes vaguely referring to himself. But for the most part, he is actually referring to all of Israel. He's not just talking about himself. And we know that on this part because he says, I was once alive apart from the law. But that can't be about Paul because when was Paul ever alive apart from the law? In fact, he says that I have been trained in the law since my birth and that I was exceeding in the law beyond all of my counterparts. So he can't be talking about himself. But at one point, the Jews were without the law. And maybe this even alludes back to Adam. What would Adam have said? Adam would have said that he was alive. And as we know, there was only one main commandment that came to Adam. Do not eat from this tree. Because if you do, you will die. Until that commandment was given, what opportunity did Adam have to sin? He had none. But then the commandment came from God. Do not do it. And when the commandment came, the serpent, let's connect this to what Paul said, the serpent seizing an opportunity says to him, Will you actually die? I say you won't. And in the moment that the desire to sin came alive, Adam and all of us over all time died. All of us in here can probably testify of this in our own lives, can't we? This is revealing so much about ourselves. And any hope that we have in our own rightness should wane. What if it is the people who appear to be the most alive? What if they appear to be alive because they have no regard for God's commandments? 
Let's go back in time. Let's go back to that first moment you heard the gospel, and I mean actually heard the gospel. When it first awakened you, that first moment you heard the gospel, there is no realization of, look how alive I am. You think, wow, how dead was I? Paul connects all of this together by saying, Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. It is not the law that is the problem, but it is sin in us. He goes on in verses 13. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. Very popular verse. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want. Is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. These are some of the most difficult passages to interpret. And that reason is, is because conventional teaching will tell you, oh, Paul is talking about himself here. Paul is talking about his own struggles with sin. But I'm going to show you today that that's actually not the case. He says that the law is spiritual. But then he says, but he is sold under sin. Now, all of us know that based on what we have already read, that Paul says that those of us who are in Christ are free in regard to sin. That means that Paul can't be talking about himself. He would not say in one letter, passage of this letter, I am free to sin, but then says, I am sold under sin. He cannot be talking about himself, being that he was redeemed. He would not say that he himself was sold under sin. 
And so he is describing a person here who actually lacks the spiritual strength to resist temptation. He says, the law is spiritual. I am of the flesh. I do not do what I want, but what I hate, I, do, I want to do. He says, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. He says, it is sin indwelling me that leads me to more sin. For the Christian, though, if we think about who and what Paul is talking about, it is not the indwelling of sin that causes us to sin. For the Christian, it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that leads us to righteousness and right doing. So why do I want to clear this up? It has major implications on us if Christians think Paul is describing his ongoing spiritual struggle with sin. We are not saying that we do not sin. Obviously, we sin. But misinterpreting this text might actually lead us to think that settling in our struggle for sin is a comfortable place. Because after all, Paul said he couldn't even control his own actions. So what are the alternative actions for us to figure out if Paul was actually talking about himself or a Christian? Or is Paul talking about someone who was not a Christian? Well, let's look at some things that Paul has said. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, I have it tattooed on my wrist. Paul says this. He says, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Well, that can't be the same Paul who just said, I can't even control my own actions That can't be the same one who says, I don't have the ability to carry things out because he just said, I discipline my body. I control it. What about what we read in Romans 6 and 18? He says, and having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So in this passage, he talks about submitting his members to sin. But now he says the believer doesn't submit their members to sin. He goes on in 6.6, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians, he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 524 through 25, he says, if we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. When we look at all these texts together, there is a clear difference in what Paul describes as a spirit filled believer waging war against sin and the unconverted in our text who has submitted themselves 
to the order of their own sinful desires. Now, this doesn't just change how we view our own fight against sin. Yeah, it gets rid of any excuse you can make about any sins that you wrestle with and feel like you can't have victory over because Paul said, no, those of us who know the Lord have crucified sin, that the body of sin has been brought to nothing in us. But it also should change the way that we view the unconverted. I have noticed often especially in the circles of people who consider themselves really sound theologically, that there is a callous attitude towards people who don't know the Lord. There is a hardness towards people who are unconverted. I've even heard people say about folks dealing with certain types of sin, oh, they ain't struggling. They're doing exactly what they want to do. But he describes here, Paul describes an unconverted person who is ping-ponging, who is going back and forth in the battle between this person who understands what righteousness is but doesn't have the power to do it themselves. They lack the spiritual strength they need to actually obey. Y'all, this should shoot any arrow in the idea that anyone chooses the sins that they are afflicted with. Yes, a person may choose to submit to them, but every single one of us was born with some sort of struggle with sin. And my struggle may not be your struggle. Your struggle may not be the other person's struggle. But none of us chose to struggle with the things we struggle with. And all of us, if we are honest, who know the depth of our struggle with sin, if we could get rid of it, God knows we would. What makes the unconverted any different? All of us knows at least one person, but probably far more than that. Someone who is not a believer, but they hate that they struggle with the thing that they struggle with. They hate that their affections are not for who they should be. They hate that they find comfort in immoral sexual activity. They hate that the needle or the bottle brings them peace, but they cannot stop themselves from doing it. And it is a mis handling of scripture if we try to convince them that they can. Instead of meeting them, y'all, with disgust, we should acknowledge their struggle, but double down on the fact that, no, you actually cannot do this on your own. You do not have the strength to fight this fight on your own that they need the working and the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish his saving work in their lives. Has any of us fell to that pit of hopelessness by which we shouted out, who will free me? 
And when Paul refers here to a body of death, he does not say that the eternal hope of man is to be without the body, but it is to be without a body of sin. Even then, his hope for us all is pointed to the resurrection and the redemption of all things. In this, we must as well remind ourselves and those who are in the fight of their lives that there is hope in the gospel for them. Yes, this passage means so much for us, and it means that if I am struggling with a sin that I feel like I cannot get over, that if I have the indwelling of the Spirit, then the power to overcome sin in my life is in me. But that also means to that brother or that sister or that nephew or that child, that daughter, that son, that cousin, that friend, that enemy that is in that fight. The only reason you have a leg up is because of the indwelling of the spirit in you. And that means the only hope they would have would not be in their own willingness to fight, but that they would have as opposed to the indwelling of sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We do not beat folks up. We don't bash them. But we, more than anyone, can identify with their struggle of sin because every single one of us in this room had a struggle of sin. And every single one of us, but by the grace of God, would collapse under the weight of our own. Yes, it changes how we think about ourselves, but it changes so much more how we think about others. And if you think that they're just doing what they want to do, give this text some consideration and think about what that means when Paul says, I want to do right, but when I try to do right, evil is close at hand. We all know somebody who is in that fight, who is in that struggle. And the only thing that will remedy it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, God. God, we just thank you for even clarity on what this is referring to. God, I would admit that even I have been guilty of, one, misinterpreting this text, but also using this text as an excuse for my own sin. Saying, well, if Paul struggled like this, then I can struggle. But God, even Paul is not the standard. Christ is. So Lord, help us see with clarity that if he is referring to the fight that the unconverted are in, God, that the only hope that they would have is the hope that we now have, and it is in you. It is in you. God, every single one of us in this room knows someone who's in that fight. God, while we may be tempted to harden our hearts, 
to fix our posture against them, to turn from them. Lord, the light of the truth that we have is the only thing that could illuminate the darkness of their sin. Let us, with all confidence and boldness in you, share the truth with love, with grace, but also identifying the same struggle. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.